All right, super stoked to be joined by my friend Hannah Frankman, the one and only. Hannah, she grew up homeschooled, and we're going to get into that a little bit, but she's also the former program manager at Praxis, and she is huge proponent of self-empowerment, of human flourishing, of capitalism, uh, and she's making a ruckus in the education world as founder of Rebel Educator, and she's also host of the Hannah Frankman podcast, and she's having amazing conversations with all sorts of innovators in the education world. And so we're really going to go to town and, and riff today on this topic of education. So welcome, Hannah. Thank you so much. I'm so stoked to be here. Amazing. Okay, so you have an interesting story growing up homeschooled and then moving into the sort of alt-ed space and entrepreneurship space, but you told a lot of your story on the Kyle Kingsbury podcast last year, and I'm going to go ahead and just direct everyone listening. Check out Hannah's appearance on that. We'll, we'll link to that in the show notes, and she goes more into depth. Um, I want to springboard off of what I learned in that podcast, hearing about growing up homeschooled and then kind of figuring out were you going to go to college or not, and then finding praxis and then pitching yourself to be an intern and then just kind of continuing to persist to to launch your career and then helping others launch their career. And now you're sort of in this entrepreneurial world and you're making a ruckus, like I said, on, edu on education. And you're clearly fired up about this. And what was interesting to me about the Kyle Kingsbury interview is that the way I at least came across to me was like, you sort of almost fell into this world. Obviously, it's very much aligned with who you are because you, you have that background. But what I'm really curious about is like, what is driving you now to make all this ruckus? Like you have all this experience, you have all this knowledge, you have all this vision for what education can be. And you, you see what's, what's going on in the school, the school system. And you know, there's, there's things, there's obviously a niche here, right? But the thing is, you have a lot of interests. And you, you yes. when you were when you were a teenager, you were exploring a lot of different different interests. And so, like, what's um, what's kind of fueling the fire right now at that like at your core? That's how I'd love to start this conversation. That's such a big question, and I really appreciate this question. It's so common to come on an interview and have somebody start with you know surface level and work their way down. I like that you're going directly for the jugular immediately. This is so fun. Um. I think there's a there's there are a couple ways to answer this question. The first is maybe a little more a little bit I don't know, closer to the surface, maybe a little bit more obvious when you look at the trajectory that I'm on. I feel like I got incredibly lucky in a few key regards in how I was raised and how I was educated. The most important thing being the fact that I was homeschooled in the first place, which completely altered my life trajectory, obviously, because of what I do for work now talking about education. I wouldn't be doing that if I hadn't been homeschooled. But the way that I was raised really, I think, fundamentally altered not only how I developed as a human, but also how I perceived the world and my place in it and what was possible for me, how much creative effort or creative influence I could exert on the world around me. I discovered that that was all quite malleable from a very small age. 
in large part because I wasn't stuck in a classroom all day being talked at by adults who were telling me how the world was and how I needed to conform to it. But also the specific way in which I was homeschooled and some of the self-direction and creativity that I was afforded by the way my parents chose to educate me was really formative in my development as a human. And I didn't fully realize it until I was an adult and I was interacting with the real world and the adult world. And I realized, wait a second, this is the way I'm looking at the world is very dramatically different from a lot of the people around me. How, why is that? And so I feel like I got so lucky and I feel so lucky to be living as an adult who was homeschooled. I really, truly believe that it made an enormous difference on just the the contours of my day-to-day life and how I interface with the world around me. And I feel so so fortunate to have had that, that I feel very strongly like this is a thing that I want to help other families do. I know that it was so mission critical for my parents to be able to see other people successfully homeschooling their kids and talking about that experience to help them feel like they weren't making a dramatic mistake by homeschooling me. And so there's a a big part of my motivation is a desire to support other families in doing that. I want to help as many kids as I possibly can grow up. And I'm not, you know, a homeschooling purist. I'm very in favor of lots of different alternative modalities of education. I'm a big fan of micro schools and Montessori schools and Waldorf schools and different types of innovative online schools. There are so many different programs that I think are amazing that families can choose from, but I want families to feel empowered to choose something beyond just the status quo system. So that's that's hugely motivating for me. This desire, it almost feels like a thank you to be able to say, I had this experience largely because other people had blazed the trail before my family ever got here. And I just like want to help add to that because nothing's more important than the kids. You watch little kids and you watch their creative energy and their excitement, their enthusiasm for life and their deep desire to learn about all of it. And you just, I don't know, maybe I just have a really strong maternal instinct to the world at large, but it's just a strong desire to protect that and fight for it and help nurture it and support it. And so that's highly motivating to me. But I think on an even deep, deeper level, And you kind of alluded to this in the way that you introduced me, which was very kind. And we'll probably get into this. This likely will be a recurring theme throughout this conversation, I'm guessing. But I also, I just really value human freedom. And I really value human flourishing. And to me, those two values are at the core of what what I value in life, both for myself but also for the world around me. I value being someone who can utilize my freedom and pursue my own flourishing. And I also really value the fact that we live in a world that is, again, very creatively malleable. So you can impact the world around you. You can you can be a person who's just living in it and sort of subjective to what other people decided to create, or you can create something yourself. And so I, I love the game of that creative game of helping to poke and prod at the world and massage it into the the ways that you want it to be. It's like, well, why isn't there a Twitter account for parents who are looking to homeschool their kids? Maybe I can start one, you know, like, we'll, we'll just make that happen. It's not just, I'm not just gonna sit there and say, it's a shame this doesn't exist. I'm going to make it. Um, and I've influenced the world in a small way. But that creative pursuit in in the pursuit of 
freedom and flourishing is even more deeply motivating. Like I see the, the desire to do the work in education as a subset of that. Like to me, the education work is in per, is in the name of freedom and flourishing. But there are so many other things that I think are also mission critical for an individual's ability to be free and flourish. And so I even see like the work I'm doing with education, like I'm learning too. I'm learning how to be a more effective communicator. I'm learning how to be a better writer, a better speaker. Um, those are skills that I can use again and again to talk about other things that I also care about. So there's like, there's layers to this. This is a very, com I just yeah. gave you a very convoluted answer, but you asked me a very con complicated question. Hopefully that kind <laughs> of makes sense. There's a lot here. It's definitely, yeah, a deep question. <clears throat> and yeah, what I'm sensing is at the deepest layer, perhaps, is those core values of freedom and flourishing. and the fact that you grew up with the home education experience and you basically grew up with your eyes fully awake with your with your mind fully awake to what's possible in the natural learning process and that was basically the norm for you and then you sort of started to interact with the world and you you did like have a brief stint in public school and you're just like you see the contrast from your normalized healthy experience and then you see how that that gap is definitely a needed gap and then so then and then your core values of of freedom and flourishing i'm guessing you get fired up about well you get fired up about this the conventional school system and how it's in in impeding on that freedom and flourishing and so it's it's like it's personal for you in that way because you value that so deeply and then like the maternalistic thing there's like, there's the care about kids and like, that's, um, that's core as well. Here's a question. How much, and this is me sort of giving a dose of my bias in, in the way I see it and what motivates me and in the vision I want to impart for the world. It's the way I've seen one reason I'm value children and, and, creating so that we can create these new healthy options for kids and families is because I see that as just fundamental for the world at large, right? I mean, it's a pretty simple concept that the way we treat children is going to affect the adult world. Mm -hmm. And so if we want to actually change the world, then let's start with the basics, which is the beginning of life and, and how children are raised. So like, how much do you see how much are you sort of thinking about, I want to create a new future and make a huge impact on the world or you, or, and that's like, I get super visionary in, in the way I see things and picturing what's possible. But that's just me. Like, are you more zoomed in on, on, on just the day to day and the, let's just solve this problem. Like, tell me more about that. It's actually kind of neither. Hmm. It's more, I think very much in terms of individuals. Um, I think, you know, categorizations are always abstractions. And the only like, the, the cleanest way to look at the world is through individual units. Obviously, the world is extraordinary, extraordinarily complex, and you can't actually assess every single individual piece of information, you have to categorize it somehow. It's how our brains are designed to function. It's how we deal with large numbers. Um, that's fine. Like, you know, we we do have to think in large part about the world in terms of in the context of 
buckets of things, categories of things. But when I think about education specifically, I think that's part of the problem with the entire system is that we think far too much in terms of generalizations and buckets. And the whole point of the homeschooling movement to me is to bring it back to the individual unit and to say, okay, this child needs to be educated in some way to prepare them to navigate the adult world. Like that's the base level indivisible hypothesis. Okay, what does that look like? What is this individual child's needs, interests, proclivities, desires? Uh, what type of trajectory are they perhaps on? What are their strengths and weaknesses? And those things can be categorized. It's like there are categories of kids who struggle with specific things or are interested in specific things. But I don't find it terribly helpful to think in terms of those abstractions when thinking about education. I care much more about the individual, partly in reaction to the fact that so much of the world does think in terms of broad categories and buckets. And so like we need a heavy dose of the individual to like balance it out. But I also think maybe I'm super biased because I grew up that way. Like I was homeschooled. I was a it was a school of of one. Uh well I had a I had a younger sister, but like we were different grade levels. So like at any point in time it was like a class of one being catered to. So I learned very quickly to think about education in those ways. Like my parents had no interest in thinking about, you know, what is what does the average eighth grader need to be learning this year? Like, who cares? It's what's, what does Hannah need to be learning? That's the only relevant question. Um, but I think when I'm thinking about the education problem and thinking about it in terms of individuals, like, can I help? Will this tweet that I'm writing perhaps help an individual family make a decision? Will this podcast episode I'm, I'm recording perhaps help an individual family make a decision? Um, that's so important to me. And I almost think about, you know, the big picture changing the world stuff as sort of like a happy side effect or a happy accident. Like if I do the individual thing well again and again and again, and theoretically a lot of the things I'm saying are helpful to many individuals, not just one, then eventually you see a big picture ripple effect. And you see a lot of people being positively impacted and the world at large being changed. But that's not the objective to me. The objective is I wake up in the morning. It's like, if I can help one kid today, if I can hmm. help one family, then that will be that will be good. Yeah, I like that angle on it. And it's it rubs off on me and in, in thinking about how I want to view my why and my objective. And I think at the, at the end of the day, it's for me, at least it's an integration of all of the above. and the the big picture visions for building a world where humans are flourishing that like fuels me up to then go serve the individual and uh it can all work together but yeah that's that's how the, the ripple effects actually happen is let's let's show up and serve people right now serve individuals and it's like it's like if you're want to write a book like you don't write a book in one sitting typically so you show up, you, your goal is not to write the book, maybe. The the goal is to write this sentence, this paragraph that's helpful for people. And that can, you show up and do that week after week, day after day, then, oh, you, you realize three months later that you now have a book. But it's like, that's not a perfect metaphor, but there's this idea of let's just show up and let's serve individuals. And that's that's really where where the shifts happen, right? So let's riff 
let's just, okay, we're going to do a conscious rant if you're up for it. Uh, <laughs> what I want, I want to just let ourselves take a few minutes and this is going to set us up for then our, a very healthy, like conversation around what's possible for education. But I want us to, to give ourselves permission for, for a few minutes here to sink in to what's, what are the issues in the conventional system? And I think I say conscious rant because for me, again, these things are integrated. The, the idea of identifying problems and then channeling that for me, like frustration about it or anger about it or any feelings about the problems into constructive creative action like you're doing. Like, let's go create the Twitter, right? Um, but like, tell me what comes to mind for you first and foremost, about the K through 12 school system that you don't like. We can go from there. That it exists. Ah. <laughs> All of it. Um, there's, there's so much. Um, the way our system is structured, it's, it's not designed with a child in mind. It's designed with the benefit of the system in mind, the ease of the function of the system, um, it's a very uh, centralized and authority and like administrative centric system. So the way it is structured inherently is, I mean, think think about the nature of a large system. A system cares about sustaining itself as a system. It does not care about its individual components as much as it cares about itself as a system. It never will. If it started to care about the individual components more than it cared about itself as a system, it would disintegrate. The system has to be the most important thing. Um, and so in any large system, you're going to have waste. You're going to have some some level of, of individual pieces that just don't fit inside the system. It's just sort of like chaff or churn, and it's just sort of accepted as being a symptom of the way the system is structured. Um, I'm being very harsh about this, but I, think, I, I, I do think it's justified to look at it just like very bluntly for a moment. Uh, this is not an indictment of anyone who's involved in the system this is not an indictment of anyone who you know the the often very wonderful people who are working within it to support individual children like you know the teachers aren't at fault they're just inside of a system that is inherently broken in large part because it is trying to be our gar a gargantuan system uh, which it never should have been but the way our education system is structured um a lot of kids just sort of get lost in the shuffle. Um, a lot of kids never get their needs met. And even the kids who are, you know, quote unquote, doing well, are doing well within the context of succeeding inside of a system that ends when you turn 18, unless you go on to college. But even then, it's, you know, different from the standard K-12 uh, standardized and compulsory path that everyone is on. And it does a very poor job preparing you for reality outside of the system, which is very different from reality within it. Um, and it's a relatively new phenomenon. It's a thing, you know, the, the the level of standardized education that we have in America really only been around for like 100-ish years, 100 and change. It's a pretty, it's a relatively new thing in the context of human history. Um, it's a very artificially formed structure. It's very top down. It's very bloated honestly um and it's really really damaging to kids they spend 12 plus years 
sitting inside of cinder block rooms in rows under artificial light, only allowed to move at certain periods of the day, only allowed to talk at certain periods of the day, required to raise their hand and ask permission to even do something like go to the bathroom, ask a question, go to the nurse's office if they're not feeling well. Um, All of their movements are restricted and pre-prescribed. And they're being taught in unison subjects that they may or may not be developmentally ready for. And they're learning all of these implicit lessons about behaving and deferring to authority and speaking when spoken to and doing things because someone else told you to do them and following instructions and rules and your value as a person being attached to the letter grade that you get on any given assignment that you turn in, whether or not the assignment was even developmentally appropriate to where you are at in the context of like in the progression of learning a specific topic. Um, it's actually really interesting when you think about it, the way the way grades work, <laughs> like both both letter grades both, yeah. inside of a class, like, you know, A, B, C, but also like the grade progression of first grade, second grade, third grade. You can get like 60 or 70 percent completion or mastery in any given grade level and be considered like you you passed the grade you you finished it you can learn 70% of the material in first grade and be considered ready for second grade even though almost a third of the material you don't actually understand and so you have this progression where kids aren't learning everything at every grade level and then they continually get progressed to the next level and so from an academic standpoint they have all these gaps and holes and the knowledge is iterative it's being taught in a progression for a reason especially things like mathematics where you have to learn multiplication and division before you can learn fractions you have to learn fractions before you learn algebra but you can learn these things without fully understanding every topic or like every every piece of a specific subject area and then you get to geometry or algebra and you're struggling because you can't remember how to how to simplify fractions or how to multiply fractions and you're confused and you're frustrated and you think you're bad at math but really you just never had a chance to fill in the gaps that you maybe picked up along the way because everybody else in your class was finished with whatever they were learning and so you know the rest of your class mastered it. You all had to move on. You now have this hole in your understanding that's going to impact you for the rest of your progression through every, the entirety of mathematics. So you have this academic shortcoming where kids aren't even fully learning the material. They don't understand. They have giant holes in their understanding of how different subject areas work. They're stuck in these classrooms that are incredibly artificial. They're stunting their I mean, honestly, they're like creative and and curiosity potential because that's very boring. Who wants to be there all day? Um, but you're also, you know, these kids are, they're not learning skills that actually interface well to the in the real world. Like all of the things that you need to know how to do to be successful in the real world and in many ways are at direct odds with what you're learning inside the classroom. And so kids get out in the real world and they don't understand how to hustle. They don't understand how to take initiative. They don't understand how to be self-directed and make their own schedule and, you know, take the responsibility to go reach out to the person that you want to talk to because they're afraid of the authority figure because that's what they learned inside the classroom. They've just been like cloistered altogether and sequestered off from the rest of the world for 18 years as preparation to be in the real world. Like when you start to think about it, it really doesn't make sense. Um, I could go on talking about this for a really long time. 
But I feel like at a high level, most of the problems with the system are like at least tangentially related to most of the things that I mentioned. Um, but like, you know, you could break out any piece of this and write a laundry list of flaws or, yeah. or faults or things that are damaging to kids. It's it's really extensive. Yeah. So there's so many different threads we could go down with <laughs> these issues. I, I like to highlight uh, it's 12 plus years and then it's not just the the time in school, but it's a time outside of school. It's the kids showing up in the morning by by. Their, their parents are like making them get up in the morning and there's this whole like rushed morning experience to get to the, the, the dreaded school bus. Um, there's a school bus experience okay, for many kids is like no fun. Um, just, it, it could be up upwards to like 45 minutes, like on a school bus with your heavy backpack with kids you don't like. And they look, that part's not talked about very often. Um, and then you show up and you're probably sleep deprived, especially if you're like teenager and they're, it's totally outside of your circadian rhythm to be getting up at 6 a.m. or whatever. And then you have all the homework outside. And so it, it, there's the actual experience in the school day. And then you have the surrounding experience and you have the parents that are sort of reinforcing the school paradigm. And making their kids, making their kids uh, do the homework, and then there's all that damage. Then there's the opportunity costs. Like how is how the how's the relationship between kids and their parents impacted because of this strife of like making kids do homework? And then what if you could have just had that time to actually connect with your child and your teenager and build a relationship? So there's all these dynamics. There's all these. There's all these factors. Um, the the lack of movement and play, that's a big one. When I was I was in the system, you had especially boys. I just one thing I did was like I had a class, like a small class once of just boys, and we'd be like, "Hey, let's take a walk like around the room." <laughs> but like these kids are are forced to sit still and then medicated often when they really just need to be playing and moving their bodies. Um, there's so many, there's so many directions we could go with this. What's coming up for you? Well, there, I've, I've, there are two things that I think are worth talking about the, the separation of children from their families. And then this like play thing. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to talk about these in, in the order that I mentioned them, but I think they're both really, really important. Um, this artificial separation of the family is so weird to me like there really isn't a good historical precedent for it it's pretty i mean i'm i'm, I'm speaking in incredibly broad brush strokes here but like through much of human history the family has been a fairly cohesive unit where they spend a lot of time together and this weird separation of the like both parents go to work every day and the kids go to school and then after school they have extracurriculars they might be playing sports they might be in band they come home, they have to do their homework, so they're not even fully engaged with the family when they're home. All of a sudden, families are getting rushed mornings and evening dinner together, and that's mostly it. And then maybe they sit down and watch some TV together before everybody goes to bed. But it's this very strange separation of the kids are spending way more time around their teachers and their peers than they are around their parents. And people aren't spending very much time together. And it's just it's so 
strange to think that that has become normal in you know among a species that for much of our history was much more cohesively tribal in sort of like a village sense where you know kids were around their parents and they were also around their grandparents and they were around their friends' parents and like the neighbors' parents and there were all of these integrated bonds and relationships that were not just divided by birth year and grade level and academic level but by community and that's one of the things that I find really interesting when talking to homeschooled kids is they're often really good at talking to adults and kids of other ages um kids who are in mixed age classrooms are the same way I went and visited a Montessori school recently where the I was observing in the classroom and the kids kept coming up to me and introducing themselves. It was an elementary age classroom. So it was, you know, like first grade through fifth grade or something like that. And, you know, I was told when I was invited into the classroom, it's like, you know, just like pull up. There's like a chair here for visitors. Like you can come sit in the chair. The kids might come over and say hi, like, you know, just, you know, hang out. They might offer to make you tea. And lo and behold, all these different kids came up. They were busy doing their things. But one after another, like they'd look over and they'd be like, who is that? And they just come over and they'd be like, hi, I'm Zoe. Like, hi, I'm, I'm, you know, like Joel. And they'd, you know, introduce themselves and you'd talk to them and they were great. And like one of them offered to make me tea and it was just so lovely. And it was so different from interacting with a public schooled child because they weren't afraid of the adults because they have such a different relationship to adults and also to mix. I mean, it's a mixed age classroom, right? There are seven-year-olds in there. There are 11-year-olds in there. So they're comfortable interacting across different age groups. It doesn't feel weird to talk to an adult, but we live in this world where we just have this very strange separation of kids from their families. And I find that very strange um the play thing is also really important because children are hardwired to play developmentally for a reason uh we like the play function exists because it's developmentally critical and there's so many things that children learn via play that is being like they're not being allowed to engage in when they're in the classroom because they're supposed to sit still and listen and it's so easy to look at homeschool kids who are just like running around outside all day and they're, you know, playing with their Legos and whatever. And it looks like they're not doing anything constructive or important. It looks like they're just fooling around. But all that stuff is super developmentally critical. And we're just depriving our kids of it by making them like, you know, operating under this fallacy that they have to look busy all the time in order to be growing correctly towards being good adult citizens, which is, again, a very strange paradigm. I like how we're we're sort of unearthing these these fundamental issues with the system, not necessarily, well, in, in, in addition to agreeing with many people's critiques um, about, say, oh, well, they're teaching history, but they're not teaching, like, uh, unbiased version of history. It's like, that's fine. Or they might, there might be a critique, like, they're teaching math, but they're not, they're not teaching financial intelligence. Okay, definitely agree with that. All that's, like, to be to be addressed and acknowledged. But like what we're talking about is the actual fundamentals of the system, even below that. And like all of the above it is problematic. Um, but I want to go back to one thing you mentioned a little ba- while back about kind of criticizing the system versus the individual working in the system. 
And I'm really curious about your take on this and how, A, we can think about people working in the system in the sense of let's being let's be honest with what is happening with what teachers often are doing or how they're treating children without getting into this like moralistic evil shaming paradigm which only mm-hmm. just creates division you know in this broader conversation and what i'm really interested in especially as a former teacher is building those bridges and how do we how do we have that honest conversation about the problems of school fundamentally and and not sort of bypassing that in any way and recognize that at the end of the day this there's a systematic momentum and then there's also the fact that systems don't actually exist it's the individuals doing things that actually exists. So there's a sense of mm-hmm. personal responsibility, right? That the which is a huge reason why I left the left the system. Like I'm taking responsibility. I'm leaving the system because this is out of integrity with with myself. And I think it's key for us to assert that it is the individuals in the system that are responsible for their actions. And we can't just say they're doing the best they can in the system and that it's okay that they're doing those things. But we also don't want to I think it's not moving the needle forward in the evolution of this to to straight up call teachers evil and so forth. So I'd love to hear your take on that. I mean, I think I tend to take a pretty nuanced stance on this one because I think it's really, really important to get right. Um, I don't think most teachers are like, inherently at fault for what's happening inside of the system. I think that they're victims of it too. And when you think about the trajectory that most teachers are on, and you can speak to this much, much in much more detail than I ever could because you you walked this path. Um but so many teachers have never done anything but be inside of the system. They started when they were in kindergarten, they were five years old. They went all the way through as students. They graduated from high school and went on to college and studied education. And then while they were in college, they started working in the classroom again. And then they graduated and became teachers. And it's all they've ever done. They've maybe held a few summer jobs in high school and college where they've, you know, worked in the service industry or, you know, worked at a golf course or worked in an office as an intern or something, maybe if they branched out a little. But most of them have never done anything besides this. And when that's all you've ever known, that's your entire frame of reference for how the world works. You're trying to do well inside the parameters of the game that you've been taught. So you understand how a classroom works and you understand how the school system works. You understand the rules of that game. And to you, success means playing that game well. And to have been inside of that for your entire life, it's kind of a leap to suddenly realize that wait a second, is this whole thing not working? And is this not optimized for the success of the students? And because there's something wrong with this, like you have to have some type of experience that snaps you out of the paradigm that you have had your entire life and everyone around you has had. And so I, you know, I, I, you know, place no fault on the people who have been inside of that system because that's a, that's a tough thing to overcome. I think you know, I mean, obviously we've talked about this. I think that 
there are a million and one things wrong with the system, but I don't blame people who've never done anything other than for not seeing that as clearly as those outside the system might might be able to say, wait a second, well, why do we do this this way? This doesn't make sense. Um, I also think that a lot of people are motivated for very good reasons to be educators. And I think that there are lots of teachers that do an amazing job at what they do. They're truly committed to the kids and they're truly making a measurable difference in the lives of those kids. And I don't want to belittle that in any way by how I talk about this. Like the system is wrong. The system is poorly structured. It's, you know, causing deep and sometimes very hard to reverse damage on the individuals who move through it. But you know, the, the teachers themselves aren't waking up in the morning and going, hmm, how can we make sure that these children are, you know, subjugated so that they yeah. they never have an independent thought ever again in their lives? Like, that's not most teachers are waking up in the morning and going, how can I help Bobby get a better math score so that he doesn't have to go to summer school and he can move on to the next grade and he can get out of the bad family situation or the bad socioeconomic situation that he's found himself in? And have something better for himself and his future. And that's a very noble thing to be working towards, no matter what the, you know, no matter what system you have entered in order to move towards that goal. Are there better ways to help Bobby, probably, than putting him through public school? Of course. Um, is it noble to be trying to help Bobby even from inside of the system? Also, of course. Um, and so I think I think that level of nuance is really, really important. Um, I think also. It's been really interesting over the past couple of years. I've talked to a lot of current and former teachers, and it's really interesting to study the progressions that teachers go through in the process of exiting the system because there are a lot of very disgruntled individuals trapped inside the system or who have left it altogether to go do something else. And it's not uncommon for someone to have a red pill moment or a series of red pill moments that lead them to think, the system is pretty flawed and I'm not sure this is the place for me and I'm definitely not sure this is the place for my kids or, you know, I, I want to be doing something other than I can't justify this anymore. Um, but, you know, anyone who's gone through any type of process where they've left a large phil philosophical institution that carries enormous moral and ethical and structural weight on their worldview, whether that's leaving a religion or leaving a political philosophy, or leaving an educational philosophy like the public school system, that's an enormous endeavor. And it's not something to be just like spoken of lightly. Um, but I talk to a lot of people who are you know, fed up with the system. And I think it's also important to acknowledge that there is a huge range of types of people who are inside of the system. Um, some of them are like deeply in support of and staunch defenders of the system as it exists. And I tend to have a lot less patience talking to those types of people because I'm like, oh, but there are problems. We need to talk about it. Um, but, you know, it's a full spectrum from those types of people all the way through. And they're also, you know, there are bad people in education too. There are bad people in every field. Like there, there are people who don't have strong moral values or like a good, a good reason for being inside the system. And like I, that, that also, that too needs to be acknowledged. Um, but then, you know, the spectrum ranges from those people all the way through to people who are so disgusted with the system that they like want nothing more than to burn it to the ground. But 
they also feel like there's no other clear path for them. And like, at least they can help some kids while they're still there. Like maybe, maybe I can counteract some of the damage being done with these kids. Um, and this, you know, the spectrum has everything between those two points, the the people using it to their own, maybe even malevolent ends at times to the people who are, you know, hate it, but trying to do some good in spite of it. And like everything in between, which again is true of any large system. We're talking about millions of people involved in the public school system in America. There's no way that that's, you know, you, you, you get, you get the full range with a system that big. Um, yeah. But, but I think, I think you have to talk about it with nuance. I don't think you can talk about it in broad brushstrokes. There are just too many individual cases that I have heard about and met and spoken to. And it's just, it's complicated. Yeah, it's it's nuanced. It's very delicate. And that's why I like to reframe this from moving from a good versus bad paradigm into a needs based paradigm needs as as vocalized by Marshall Rosenberg in his book, Nonviolent Communication and recognizing, okay, let's let's go past moralistic judgment and let's move to needs based judgment so we can when you go to needs-based judgment, we're integrating that compassion in and that that love and that acceptance for what that that person is perhaps going through. And we're in a state of curiosity rather than that blaming state. So the thing is people's defenses can get activated if they think that they're being accused of being bad. And at the core of that is shame and guilt. And these, these shame and guilt emotions are really destructive and, and pull, pull us back as humans towards any sort of growth, towards healing, towards openness to new ideas. So if we can approach these conversations with curiosity, then we're in a much healthier place. That's, that's really where I seek to advocate is health wholeness health and and let's let's be the change we wish to see in the world how do we integrate this honesty with empathy so it is a very nuanced thing because if we i find that if we overemphasize honesty or overemphasize empathy if we don't keep that in balance then we could move in a direction that's not ideal so to expound upon that, if we are only, if we are biased towards calling out the issues with this, this person in the system or this teacher doing this and de-emphasizing the empathy, then that defensiveness can come up and we don't build the bridge. On the other hand, if we are emphasizing empathy and acknowledging people's intentions and acknowledging that they're seeking to help kids and that that sort of lens, but we, we sort of move away from honesty about, and, and what Marshall called denial of responsibility. Um, and if we say, well, I, well, I'm just doing my job. It's not my fault. Right. That's when we deny responsibilities as, as individuals. And so I like, Again, it's very delicate and nuanced, and I, I think the key is to bring these all together in these conversations. Um, and how do we lead with empathy so that we assure people we're not we're not trying to say you're bad, right? But then also, perhaps there's a call, and I wrote a blog post a couple of years about a couple of years ago about this sort of a call 
there's a sort of a, a challenge to teachers. I was seeking to integrate this empathy, but then like, hey, like you want to serve kids? Are you taking full responsibility for your personal empowerment for the best way to do that? Are you getting your needs met for integrity and honesty? Or are you getting lured into the pension that's on the way and you're going to just kind of not going to look at that truth about what the system is and I'm just going to tell myself a story that I'm doing it for the kids. You see how there's like that integration there, Hannah? Yeah, I think that there's like I think there's two sides to this. I think I think that there is you have to have some level of acknowledgement that most people are not inside the system for bad reasons. But that does not mean that the system is not broken. And that does not mean that you are not harmfully perpetuating the system itself. Like you're still acting as an agent of it. Um, And those two things, like I agree, they do need to be separated. Um, I think that, I mean, so much of the work that I do is centered around helping people understand why the system is broken, where it is flawed, the negative ways that it may be impacting and harming your child. And so much of the work that I do is centered around helping people find other paths forward. If you're a teacher who wants to exit the system, where do you go? What else do you do? If you have this burning need to help children, where where do you take that? Where where do you pour that energy into? What other vessels and avenues and and channels exist for you? Um, if you're, <laughs> excuse me, a parent that's looking for an option beyond public school for your kids, what else is out there? Are you crazy for thinking that there are other options and that maybe the status quo system isn't isn't the best thing for your kids? And okay, you're not crazy. Then where do you go from here? And so. I mean, you you know me fairly well. You know that I will talk until I'm blue in the face about all the things that are wrong with the system. Um, and so there is also a component of like, just because, just because like people are inside of the system for good reasons does not mean that we shouldn't, like we still need to talk about the things that are wrong here. We still need to talk about the ways that the system is broken and the ways that it's hurting kids. Um, but I, I, I just think it's really important to be clear about who the enemy is, and the enemy is the system itself. If we all walked away from the system and we all went and did something else, mm. it would solve a lot of our problems. The system is the bad guy. Yeah, that's – I mean, again, I like to like move beyond the bad and enemy kind of concepts, but I, I hear what you're saying, which is like – I like that frame, actually, um, is to recognize the system is the issue here. And hey, what if we created in an entrepreneurial way? new options? What if you channeled that incredible power you have, the soft skills you have as an educator for organization, attention to detail, your passion of working with kids, your ability to communicate and prepare presentations and the the knowledge you have about a certain domain. And let's, let's channel that into different creative, perhaps entrepreneurial options. And that's perhaps a, a segue into, into this portion of the conversation. Because I think what we can have, and hopefully this this portion of the conversation can be inspiring for any teacher listening as well that might be feeling that disillusionment or disgruntledment, disgruntledment, is that a word? Hopefully, um, around where they're at in, in this 
in this decaying and obsolete and unhealthy sick, sick, sick system, okay, how do we empower ourselves here? And then how do we contribute to evolution of education through creativity, entrepreneurship in the market and to start recognizing that, again, individual is what matters. And there's so many different ways children can, can learn. And there's so many different options and, and structures, just like there's so many different types of restaurants catering to people's needs and, and preferences. And I really invite people to stretch their imagination about what's possible for education. So I'd love to riff on that with you because we both have this sort of economics, um, sort of free market economics lens that we can see this through. And I l- would love to you know, paint a picture here for what's possible from a sort of economics standpoint as well as just different f- types of options and in education market that could that can do exist right now and that we can continue to contribute to and build off of and expand um, <clears throat> because there's so many different learning styles or preferences such as some people want to be at home with their families some kids want to be at home with their families and their families want their kids to be at home and you just have that contained environment of home education or un- unschooling or whatnot or different variations on that you have self-directed learning schools such as Acton Academy and Sudbury Valley and these more freedom-based but structured and and in-person experiences. And you have Montessori and you have micro schools and you have these emerging options, synthesis and so many different things that are emerging and then and they're catering to different needs and preferences. Um so yeah, I would love to volley back to you of, of invite uh, to riff on this idea of inviting people to expand about what's possible for an education market. Yeah, I think there's a great quote that gets batted around in the startup world a lot, especially the tech world. Um, the future is already here; it's just not evenly distributed. And I think that's. Um, I'm actually I'm gonna give I'm gonna give I'm gonna give a tangential but like concrete example of this first because I think this is like just a helpful frame of context for everything we're about to talk about. Uh, so you and I both live in Austin, and when you drive around Austin, there are Teslas everywhere. Like you go to the grocery store, there's electric car charging ports. My co- apartment complex has them. Like it's super easy to like all the infrastructure exists to be driving electric cars. Um, when I travel through most of the rest of the country, you don't see Teslas everywhere. You see them once in a while. It's like, oh, wow, there's a Tesla. And then you remember that you see them everywhere in Austin and you don't see them everywhere else when you're traveling around. Like I was traveling through uh, like the Northeast recently, barely saw a Tesla anywhere that I was driving through. Um, Are electric cars the wave of the future? Are we going to see them in most places in five years, the way that we see them in Austin now, I'm not a, you know, electric car futurist. Like this is not, not my area of expertise, but like probably seems likely um, is what we're seeing in Austin right now, the future that's going to be existing in other places five to 10 years from now, most likely the future is here. It's just not evenly distributed. It doesn't exist in every part of the country. It just exists in Austin right now. 
And you kind of see this on a geographic scale around the country quite a bit where there are places with a lot more technological advancement. There's a lot more um, just like infrastructure that's new and a little bit different and feels a little futuristic. If you fly from, uh, I don't know, like Philadelphia to Austin, it feels like you're flying through time to some extent. Like it feels like you're moving forward in history and advancement to land in Austin and things are very different here. And this is actually this, this future is not evenly distributed thing. It's actually like you can, you can tangibly see it when you move through, through geographic space. Um, So this is not some like weird abstract hypothetical concept, but this is also true for education. So the future exists, a future where, you have options for your child and they're easy to find. You have options and you know where to find them. They exist on a broader, you know, you you have the local micro school. You have four different great online options that are actually tailored around your child's interests that you can choose from. You have a cool local school like Acton Academy or something. You've got the local Montessori school and you have your local public school. And all of these are things that you can choose from based on your preferences and your budget and your logistical constraints and, you know, what feels like a culture fit for your kid and what feels like it maps well onto your kid's particular proclivities around how they like to learn and what they're interested in and how they like to spend their time and how much they like to sit still and, you know, all the other variables that go into the child's experience inside of a school, maybe where their friends are going. You have tons of options. And in some places that does already exist, Austin, again, is Austin's kind of at the future of everything at the moment, but Austin's a great example of this. There are tons of local alternative schools that families can choose from. Um, you go to other places, it's kind of a school desert. Like there really isn't much of anything besides the local public school. But because of online options, there is some level of optionality that exists for everyone. If you're willing to have your kid in a school that's online, you have dozens of options to choose from right this minute, no matter where you are. Um, but the in-person options are expanding too. And with a lot of the school choice stuff that's being passed in many states where kids can now use the state money that used to just be by default allocated to the public school, they can now use it for private schools or like other you know, homeschooling resources or other options. And so the the financial burden of paying your property taxes and on top of that paying for a private school is being lessened and parents can they have they have more choices about where they send their kids. You're gonna see more and more this is coming online, this version of reality. But I do think like the future of education is a marketplace. Like this this idea that we have this singular forced monopoly where everybody has to go through the government issue standardized system is it's already kind of a dead idea. Like I, I really think it's a dead idea. I really think that it was a bad idea from the start. We tried it as a social experiment. We had this, you know, lengthy period of attempted integration through most of the 20th century when everything was sort of becoming more centralized. But people started to get fed up. People started building alternatives that performed infinitely better. And, you know, there are some places where it's really hard for a bureaucratic system to die and for competitors to start to enter the free market but with education with something as like young and agile and full of potential and and full of importance as children. 
it's been a little bit easier for things to come online, I think. And we're starting to see a world where public school attendance is dropping. Uh, private school attendance is rising. Homeschooling enrollments, enrollments, you know, it's a kind of a broad term, but like, to, you know, to use the legalese around how people talk about it. Um, the number of homeschoolers is skyrocketing. So you have all of these you have all of these different options that are coming online and people are signaling by how they're moving their feet that this is a thing that they care about and this is a thing that their you know elections are being swung based on people's stances on school choice like this is there's a powerful movement happening right now there's a lot of momentum but i really think the future more and more is going to look like this marketplace model where there are tons of different options. The public school is one of them, but it has to compete against the other schools that are also in its area. And it's not always going to win. And, you know, it's going to have to actually fight for the students that it gets through its doors, which is going to force it to perform a little bit better, at least from an academic standpoint, than it has been currently. The academics, the outcomes are abysmal. It's terrible. Um, but that's going to, like, I, I think that that's the thing. We see it in Arizona. We see it in Florida, like these states that have much more generous um, school choice laws, ESA laws, education scholarship accounts, where kids are, you know, able to access state money to pay for things. You see tons and tons and tons of different types of schools popping up. Um, and there's a big push to make that a national trend. So the future is here. It's not evenly distributed, but the the pace of its distribution might happen much faster than one might think. Yeah, there's so much potential. I think this is an era in this decade of sort of emerging. I, I really like the term paradigm shifts. Um, and it's, it's really just getting started and there's, there's so many, so much more motion broadly around decentralization in the culture in with the information age. And there's different, different factors that are all fueling this, I think. And it's all to say that it, it's the future is here. It's not yet widely distributed, but it, it's becoming that. And people, individuals, let's bring it back to the individual. Individuals right now have the power and potential to contribute to creating that future, right? The best way to predict the future is to create it. So like you can go create if you're, if you're an educator and you are wanting to evolve this or you want to have better experiences with kids and, and focus that passion for working with kids in in win-win ways because maybe you're experiencing a lose-lose right given the sick system um so you can you can get involved with with some of these already establishing alternative options slash you can create your own um and it's it's just i think it's just helpful to highlight that again when the an education market is literally the definition of it is is sort of infinite, right? There's not, we're not trying to replace the school system with this new way of doing it because there's so many different types of kids. Every, every kid is different. Um, I love, I would love for you to speak more about the differences in learning approaches and preferences and styles and, and what's optimal for kids and families and, and based on the conversations you're having and what you're seeing. I mean, you have, you have everything from, I'm also curious, like what, you have a do you have a certain preference yourself or philosophy like if like i know you don't have kids yet but if like if you had your own kids like what was would, would you have a certain preference in terms of an environmental or a certain style of of uh 
education, self-directed education, et cetera. But there's, there's, there's everything from these more structured homeschooling, like, you know, classical conversations or Ron Paul homeschool curriculum. Like we're going to, the family is at home doing homeschooling, but there's like some structure versus just full self-directed unschooling. The kid, we just follow the kid's curiosity and there's essentially full freedom. Um, and then you have these different options with entrepreneurially um, in in these different models, which have different variations of this. So I'd love to, to hear you speak about, um, yeah, what what's, you have your finger on the pulse with these different options and like, we'd love to hear you speak about what's, what's possible and maybe your own preferences and philosophy. It's really interesting when you start talking to people who are philosophers within the education world, when you look at the history of education, there's, there's a surprising lack of change. Like we decided eons ago what subjects kids should learn about. And it really hasn't changed a ton. Like we've, and we, and we sort of like you, we decided what the structure was and sort of like what, how we handle assignments and deliverables and sort of academic standards. And there really hasn't been that much change. When you think about so many other aspects of how we exist as humans that have changed dramatically, like how we move ourselves around geographic space. Uh, we went from having like, you know, primarily we walked or we rode horses or we had, you know, it was like mostly horse powered. We had wagons and carriages and, you know, they were very crude for a long period of time. And we had all these constraints around, well, how fast can a horse go? That's about how fast you're getting to wherever you want to go. And then we invented steam power and we invented gas powered engines. We invented the engine. Uh, we invented different types of wheels. We invented the, you know, we invented trains, we invented cars, we invented airplanes. Now there's a million different ways to get to where you want to go at any point in time. If I want to get from Boston to Washington, D.C., I can pull up the train schedule, the highway directions on Google Maps. I can pull up, you know, the flight schedule and I can look at all of these different options. I can choose how I'm going to get to Boston, from Boston to D.C., in a way that's like cost effective and time effective and fits my schedule and is going to fit my comfort preferences. It's crazy how different that is. Someone from 500 years ago looking at our infrastructure for transportation would be just confused because it's so wildly different from anything they ever would have encountered. Uh, the way we handle communication, like written communication and spoken communication, it used to be that if I had something to say to you, and I was in Kansas and you were in Nebraska, I'd send you a letter and hope it got there at a reasonable amount of time and hope you respond quickly so I'd know what you have to say back. And now I can text you, I can call you, I can email you, we can get on a video call, we can FaceTime, we can Zoom. There's an insane amount of options to communicate and someone from even a couple hundred years ago would be confused to look at our communication options because they're so wildly different from anything they would have encountered. But when you look at education, 
the specifics of the space would look very different. The very large, often multi-town school districts with the big buildings and hundreds of kids in one space and the, you know, artificial lighting and the structure of everything. That would be confusing to someone who is used to the one-room schoolhouse model. But when you look at the actual academic material and the way in which academics are structured, where you have books that you read and tests that you take, you prepare for them, you study, you take the proctored test, you get a letter grade that's a percentage of how much you got correct on the test, and then you write an essay or you memorize something, all of those things are very similar to what education looked like hundreds of years ago. Someone would be able to look at that and say, wow, there are differences, but it's still recognizable what this is. And that's so different from so many other areas of human innovation. When you think about that, that's very strange that we really have changed so little. And so I don't think it's that far off to say that education is a field that's just begging for innovation. It's such rich and fertile ground. And, you know, why this hasn't happened is a, an interesting question that I wish I had an answer to. I don't know if it's, you know, do the people who have very innovative minds just not, are they not interested in education? Is it like more complicated or harder somehow because of the structure of the system? I don't know yet. I hope to have a, 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 a clearer hypothesis on this at some point, but it's very obvious that this is, you know, an area that we just don't innovate in nearly as much as we as we should um, or we could. But there are innovations that have occurred and that are occurring that are still wildly different from what happens inside the public education system, even if they're still only, you know, a couple degrees of separation away from it. So there are, there are tons of different models out there. There's, I mean, you mentioned a lot of them. There's the micro school movement, which is sort of the idea of bringing the one room schoolhouse back to the 21st century. So you have often a mixed age classroom with a single teacher and often the kids are using online resources because the beauty of this one room schoolhouse model in the modern era is that you have access to the internet and the abundance of resources that exists on the internet. So kids can learn from some of the best experts in the world in any field that they find interesting online. So your teacher in person does not have to be the most qualified person to teach you algebra and grammar and chemistry experiments and about the rise and fall of the Roman Empire. They just have to be the best facilitator and advocate for you and help you find the best resources. And you can go listen to lectures on why the Roman Empire rose and fell from the most qualified college professors in the world who've dedicated their entire lifetime to studying this. And you can learn algebra from someone like Salman Khan at Khan Academy or some other digital resource that someone's created that like directly matches the way, the language that you like to use to figure out how your mathematical problems are like structured and how they make sense. And you can find the resources that are best for you on a very customized basis. So you get both the expansiveness of a large organization and the specificity and the customization of a very small a very small community all at the same time inside of a micro school and i think that's so exciting and i'm 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 very excited to see more of these types of things start to emerge um you have the 
I mean, there are like very specific models, philosophical models of education, like Waldorf and um, Montessori that are expanding. And those are both philosophies that I have uh, a lot of personal affection for. Um, I really love Montessori education in particular. I think Maria Montessori was brilliant and as a, as a early childhood psychologist and, and, and like a student of early childhood development development, and then, you know, building it out into an actual educational philosophy that many people have successfully deployed into schools that they're building. Um, there's tons of innovation in the world of bridging education with entrepreneurship, which you and I are both intimately acquainted with, but there's lots there that's happening for, you know, younger kids, like even elementary age kids who are doing project-based learning and, you know, old for older kids, they can get the bulk of their high school experience by starting a company sometimes. And that's really awesome. Or, you know, building out some project or doing like building out a portfolio, doing something hands-on and in the real world, you have schools that are built entirely around Socratic dialogue. You have schools built around entirely around playing games. You have there's a school here in Austin where um, the kids only spend like their mornings learning academics via apps. Like they're learning it all through AI and they don't even have real teachers teaching them academic subjects and they're scoring off the charts and their academic outcomes. And they spend the rest of the day working on projects and stuff. Like there's so many different models that are emerging. And there's tons of, there are all of these different like edge, raw edges of what is possible in education that people are going and pushing and prodding and seeing what they can build within, um, which is really exciting to see. But I think there's so much out there that parents can choose from. And it's more a matter really for most families of figuring out, you know, what, what is a good fit for their their child's individual preferences and needs and stuff. But there's tons of things that are emerging that I'm really excited about. And I really think even those things are only scratching the surface of what's possible. It's definitely just scratching the surface. I'm really curious, your like personal philosophy on, and if we were to simplify it, what I'm driving at, it would be this dance with intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation. And like you mentioned, like, academics and learning reading and, and writing, for example. So very common that um, a concern parents have about giving kids more freedom is like, well, are they going to learn? I mean, most radical unschooling would say you don't even need to, to assign them to do those reading and writing and you just let them follow their curiosity. And <clears throat> some parents might feel uneasy about that because there's like, a fear perhaps that the kid won't learn what is widely considered necessary core skills, right? I'm genuinely curious, like you're just, I mean, I know, I know you're, you're first and foremost seeking to just advocate for families having options. Like genuinely curious your personal philosophy on like, for example, learning, reading and writing. And is it actually necessary to have this in a curriculum that's expected of kids or can we give them full freedom? I think my answer to this hinges a little bit based on the individual child that I'm speaking about. Like, I don't think that there's one absolute clear cut answer that's a fit for every single kid mm -hmm. under the mm -hmm. sun, no matter what. Um, there's a lot of nuance here. But generally speaking, I tend to be a big fan of 
environments that are very carefully constructed and then within those contained environments having as much anarchy as possible so you know i wouldn't just like let my child out into the world and be like especially especially a younger kid like you know this change as they get older you want to let them out in the world more and more because you know ages zero through 18 is this continual process of becoming more and more prepared to being an adult and by the time they're 16 they should be you know most of the way through the process of becoming an adult and so they should be you know ready to navigate a lot of the types of things that in two years they'll be fully expected to navigate um and so they should have more freedom to go out and grapple with the world than your, you know, five-year-old. But I wouldn't let a five-year-old just, you know, it's like, okay, here is the whole world. It is your oyster. Go have free reign. Do whatever you want. Because they'll eat Reese's peanut butter cups and play Minecraft all day. And that's not necessarily what you want them to be doing. I would set up an environment that is full of things that are going to be beneficial to my child's development to partake in. So creating an environment that has toys that are going to challenge their cognitive capacity and their problem-solving skills and their motor skills and all of the different things that they need to be learning. And I would be filling the space with books and art supplies and other things that I personally believe are very important as sort of value sets for the types of activities that I want my child to engage with. And I would have some rules of how to engage with the space. Like you can't just like take everything out and make a total mess of, mess of it and use your crayons to draw on the blocks and, you know, like whatever. Like there are some sort of standards of conduct within the space. But beyond that, I feel no need. Like if you have a space where everything that a child can do within it is constructive to their development, yes. then you don't have to get up in the morning and say, okay, it's time to practice reading again because the whole space is full of invitations mm. and the child is naturally going to become curious about things that are going to eventually lead to the development of their reading skills. So like it's important, like the basics are basics for a reason. You kind of, they underpin everything. So you have to learn them, but it's not something that necessarily has to be incredibly forced. It's like, all right, every day at three o'clock, we practice your reading because that's just like necessary for becoming a reader. There are times where that's necessary if a child's really struggling with something or they tend to really benefit from having more structure. But generally speaking, that level of totalitarian control is not necessary to start with. And you can get pretty far with the unschooling model as long as you have some guardrails around what your kid is allowed to grapple with. Like I wouldn't set my kid loose in a house that had, you know, a giant TV in the middle of the living room with video game controls and just be like, you can do whatever you want all day, every day, because I understand the allure of the quick dopamine hits of playing with video games and scrolling on TikTok. And I would not want my child's developing brain to be given free reign for those types of things and allowed to develop around that being a core part of their reality. But in a space where everything within the space is something useful and good that I would be excited for my kid to use, then I think you can like lean really heavily into the unschooling thing from there because you have this, you know, your child can be completely free and they can be allowed to have the responsibility and the satisfaction of the ownership of saying, this is what I want to do today and I'm going to do it. And I think that's an incredibly important thing to teach your kid. It's it's beautiful. It's what childhood should be. But they're also learning a skill set in how to 
take responsibility and be self-directed and all of these things, be an independent entity, which are all important things to know how to do to navigate older childhood and adulthood. Um, but generally speaking, that's kind of the the core underpinning of my philosophy. There's a lot of really great resources from Montessori that are great for sort of thinking through environment design and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't quite call it that, but it's like a you know parallel parallel idea how they set up their classrooms and stuff. Um, there are lots of great resources on helping your kids you know, develop the freedom, even in places that it's uncomfortable, like, you know, taking risks that might make you nervous as a parent, but that are really important for your child to be able to to navigate. Um, and then as they get older, they're able more and more to interface these skills that they're building with real world context where there's less deliberate environment design and there's more just like freedom within the actual adult world at large, which is also very important for their development. Yeah, I love what you said about an environment where there are invitations everywhere. And that I love that word invitation because that's that's in line with intrinsic motivation, and the child can can seek out opportunities based on that environment. I think I think this environmental element is is key to highlight for people who are first learning about unschooling and and radical freedom for education, because um, that's an immediate sort of misconception that unschooling would be the parents basically not doing anything and the child has an empty house or a house with only a TV. I mean, I, the truth is that's not, doesn't actually, that's not a common thing. Um, like the healthiest unschooling environments are those cer- certain are certainly intentionally, um, cultivated with, with the parents, um, creating, creating resources and also just being engaging, you know, and just being a model for the, you know, their own education, their own growth and learning and, and having that, having that healthy relationship with a child. This, you know, that's where it integrates in with the parenting where it's like, if, if you have a healthy relationship with your kid, the first few years of life, I don't even think he's going to want to eat Reese's peanut butter cups all day. Um, if you give him all, if you give him all the freedom, because that, that doesn't, I, I mean, I think it's, it's a sort of like an, in a sense, it's like not, not not even very interesting hypothetical to talk about for me because it's it's so hypothetical. Um, but what matters is like how do you have that relationship and, and have that engaged connection with the, with the child and and then give give him or her trust, right? And especially in the first years, and then as as the child grows in becoming more autonomous, then there's all sorts of experiences outside the home. Um, anyway, we could we could go on for for hours if not days if not weeks hannah um this has been (laughs) a blast to to synergize with you on these very meaningful and powerful topics that are are currently impacting individuals right who are families asking these questions about about education so everyone check out hannah's work she's at hannahfrankman.com rebeleducator.co and she's she's very active on Twitter with her personal account at Hannah Frankman and at Rebel Educator and lots of good healthy ideas being shared there and definitely check out our podcast the Hannah Frankman podcast lots of conversations with innovative people anything else you want to share Hannah no, I think that's that's great. I'm I'm super active on Twitter, so that's a really great place to find me. If you just go to my personal Twitter, everything else is linked from there. 
Um, I also post a bunch of stuff from the podcast on Instagram if that's more somebody's speed. And then I have a lot of the different school modalities that I talked about here on the show. I've interviewed people talking about building micro schools and building uh, yeah. Montessori schools and like, you know, how to think about setting up an environment for your kids where they can take risks and like help them navigate that. I've had all kinds of conversations like that on the podcast. Um, so if any of these rabbit holes sparked anyone's interest, there's definitely more content on any of those if you want to learn more. Um, but thank you so much for having me, Joel. This was great. My pleasure. My pleasure. And uh, I'll see it again sometime. Absolutely. Absolutely.